Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I'm thrilled to bring to you Dr. David Carr. He is a professor of geriatric medicine in the Department of Medicine and Neurology at Washington University at St. Louis. Dr. Carr is a clinician in the Memory Diagnostic Center and Geriatric Assessment Clinic at WashU, where he maintains an outpatient consulting practice in dementia and geriatrics. He works closely and collaborates with state and federally funded older driver research teams. He's involved in investigations as a principal investigator or co-investigator on research, national guidelines, and or educational initiatives related to Alzheimer's, as well as other medical conditions and driving. I am telling you, he has been the primary author on or co-author on over 100 peer-reviewed manuscripts, chapters. Dr. David Carr is truly extraordinary. And in this episode, he makes dementia and Alzheimer's easy to understand. We talk about what dementia is, what it's not, what are the causes of dementia, what you can do about it, the current practices and potential interventions, and finally, where geriatrics and memory and aging are going. As always, we make this content free. Please take a moment to do your part and share it, pay it forward. If you know somebody who is struggling with a family member that has dementia or are concerned about aging parents, please send this episode to them. Let's all share the information that Dr. Care has. Please take a moment to rate, subscribe, and pay it forward. I'm so grateful that Paleo Valley decided to sponsor this episode of the show because I love their meat sticks. They have an amazing array of flavors. Paleo Valley has the best beef sticks in the business. They are 100% grass-fed, grass-finished. They have summer sausage. They have teriyaki. They have jalapeno. They taste incredible. They are made with real organic spices to flavor the beef sticks. They also are fermented, which I think makes it incredibly unique. They function ha as a probiotic, so they have naturally occurring probiotics, which are great for gut health. And I, I do really believe that this is going to be the next wave of health and wellness. You can get 15% off your order if you go to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion or use the code Dr. Lion. That's paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion. And again, I strongly, strongly believe you will absolutely be thrilled with this product. Thank you to Timeline Nutrition for sponsoring this episode of the show, especially when you think about aging, you have to think about mitochondria and Timeline Nutrition makes a product called MitoPure. This is a game changer if you are somebody interested in aging well or someone who is following a muscle-centric lifestyle, then you're going to care about your muscle function and health. You are also going to care about your mitochondria. MitoPure has a massive impact in those areas. What it does is it helps with mitophagy, basically regenerating, renewing, and giving you energy because good mitochondrial health is the foundation of good health. I absolutely love this product. It has been around for a long time. There is a ton of research out there. If you are looking to add one new thing to your repertoire, of supplements. This is it. Head on over to timelinenutrition.com slash Dr. Lion to get 10% off your order. That's timelinenutrition.com slash Dr. Lion to get 10% off your order. Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. I am here with a very, very special guest, Dr. David Carr. He's a professor of medicine and neurology, 
Clinical Director, Division of Geriatrics and Nutritional Science at Washington University in St. Louis, where I did my fellowship, medical director of multiple different places. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have Dr. Carr on is that he is both a clinician and a researcher. Welcome to the show. Uh, Dr. Lyon, great to see you again. We miss you here in St. Louis. Uh, looks like uh, you're doing well. You've got a new book out, uh, but excited to be here today to talk about uh, the aging brain and what we can do to save those neurons. Let's let's talk all about it. Please tell the listeners a little bit about you and your current primary area of focus. Sure. So uh, I've been at uh, Washington University in St. Louis for 30 years. My background was in geriatrics. I obtained my fellowship at Duke University. But I found out very early on when I came back to my university position, very interested in the clinical and research aspects of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So I pretty much have devoted my care. I think it's fair to say um, it's 50% clinical and 50% research. Some of that is in the area of dementia and driving, uh, but a lot of it is focused on some of the new clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease where I work closely with my neurology colleagues. So my background's internal medicine and geriatrics, but half of my work week for the past few decades has been in uh, neurology per se. It's incredible. And um, by the way, if you guys are interested, we will link a um, we will put a link to your publication page. It is quite robust, and there's a oh, lot of information in uh, multiple areas, including aging and driving. Tell me, so I've heard that that by 2050, the total number of people with dementia is expected to rise to 106 million worldwide. Is that true? And that certainly seems to be a growing concern. Yes, and I, I think um, those numbers sound correct. And here in the United States, uh, you know, we've been around, you know, five, you know, six million, if you include people not just with dementia, but mild cognitive impairment. And by mid-century, we're going to be up around 14 or 15 million if we don't figure out how to slow this disease down and treat it. Let's talk a little, you know, you'd mentioned a mild cognitive impairment. Why don't you lay out for people the idea of dementia versus Alzheimer's, mild cognitive impairment, just briefly vascular dementia, some of these uh, catch-all phrases that we often use interchangeably. Yeah, it, it comes up all the time in our patient interviews and family conferences. We, we recognize that uh, dementia, although a lay term, has been defined um, by American Psychiatric Association and others to be basically a change in one or more cognitive domains that we can not only test for, but we see that's interfered with social, occupational, and or activity of daily living function. But we recognize dementia as a syndrome. You know, if I said, well, I've got arthritis, I think people can recognize you can have, you know, rheumatoid and lupus and degenerative joint disease, a lot of different causes. Dementia is the same way, B12 deficiency, thyroid disease, medicines, sometimes depression can mask. So we recognize there's a lot of different causes for dementia, the syndrome. Similarly, mild cognitive impairment is a syndrome, but we take away the impairment in activities of daily living. So we know you've had a cognitive change. We can test for it but yet it's not interfering with day-to-day -day life. And so many people are keyed in now. We're picking up a lot of people with this mild cognitive impairment, uh, where before I think we sort of just put it aside as normal aging. But we're pretty confident, and, and it's not all about short-term memory. We recognize people can have attention deficits, language deficits, personality or behavior impairment, uh, the back part of the brain we call posterior cortical dysfunction. So there could be a variety of different things from that standpoint. Now, about 90% of dementias are neurodegenerative or sort of irreversible, if you will. Um, about 10% of the time, though, we investigate, we do find some of those reversible causes. I mentioned thyroid, B12, et cetera. But of the dementias, Alzheimer's disease, depending on what clinical situation you're in, uh, probably accounts for about two-thirds uh, of um, irreversible uh, dementias. But we know that vascular disease or vascular cognitive impairment, 
uh, is the general term, vascular dementia, if you meet criteria for dementia, is common. And dementia with Lewy bodies is also uh, a cousin, if you will, uh, to Alzheimer's disease and is another uh, not uncommon situation where you can have psychosis and Parkinsonism and things along those lines. Uh, those are probably the two other types. There are frontal temporal dementia and other rapidly progressive we can get into. Uh, but most of the time we're dealing with Parkinson-related dementias, Alzheimer's disease, or uh, vascular dementia, and often there can be a mix. And as it relates to the pathology, obviously Lewy body and the frontal temporal dementias, is there an underlying pathology that we can, let's say we're going to say Alzheimer's. So if two-thirds of the case of dementia, we would consider Alzheimer's in nature. Is there a or an agreed upon pathology of these diseases? There sure is. And um, although it can vary, um, there, there are some standards regarding autopsy and, and the findings. And although there are a variety of different findings in Alzheimer's disease, um, two um, abnormal proteins are sort of the pathognomonic or the um, uh, footprint, if you will, of defining the disorder. One of those is amyloid. Amyloid is a protein that sits outside of the neurons. We call that sort of extra neuronal, if you will. Uh, and then uh, with inside the brain cell or the neuron, there can accumulate a protein we call tau. And in Alzheimer's disease, specifically phosphorylated tau, and we've gotten pretty good at measuring these things now that we can actually, in a person, identify if they have significant amounts of these proteins, uh, which help. Most neurodegenerative diseases end up being related to misfolded proteins, and those are the two common ones that we see for Alzheimer's disease. But there are other proteins that cause brain disease too. From a perspective of uh, any clinicians listening, if you are looking for amyloid or tau proteins, is this a uh, CSF, is cerebral spinal fluid? Is this a blood marker? How would, where are we at as it um, relates to implementing into practice? Right. So we have entered into the era of Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, and uh, it's an exciting one. I think it's fair to say that still a significant number of dementia evaluations don't necessarily need biomarker studies, but an increasingly number of minority of the workups will. And I think we are evolving very soon where we'll simply have a blood test to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. They're already here. It's just a matter of them being approved by the FDA and being validated in other centers. But basically, there are three groups of biomarker tests for Alzheimer's. Um, one uh, is are the PET scans. And the PET scans are of two types. It makes sense. There's two proteins. There's the amyloid and there's the tau. The, the, the scan that is um, most further along to diagnose Alzheimer's disease is, is an amyloid PET scan. There's different you know, binding compounds. Uh, but this has been uh, documented, evidence-based, Right now, as I'm speaking, and this could change today or tomorrow, Medicare hasn't yet approved those. They can be $5,000, $6,000 out of pocket. Some providers probably are covering them across the country. And given we have a new monoclonal antibody named lecanemab that's being used to treat Alzheimer's disease, I think it's just a matter of time before the insurance companies um, uh, do cover that. But So the PET scans are one... We often have research studies where we can get the PET scan covered, uh, but that uh, you know is a barrier financially. The second biomarker tests are blood tests, and these have popped up all across the country and the globe. Um, some of them are focused in on amyloid, but many of them now are, are focused on tau and amyloid, and they may include age in their algorithms, uh, APOE protein, uh, genotypes, um, but they've um, become very uh, uh, effective in ruling in or ruling out symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we are starting to use one at WashU. Uh, it's called the Precivity AD2. But there are, like I said, others across the globe. Uh, but uh, they, they're gaining momentum. If you think about it, that's what really all of us want. We want to be able to kind of walk into the lab and get a blood test and not have to do the other tests. The third set of biomarker tests are the spinal tap or lumbar puncture tests. 
Those are generally covered by insurance. But uh, again, you have to go in. <laughs> Nobody is lining that up done. for that. In the clinic, there's small risk of infection or bleeding, but um, I, I don't do those. My colleagues in neurology do them. It's a small, flexible needle. or typically in and out in 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then you can measure the proteins, the uh, amyloid and the tau proteins. And those tests are very good at ruling in and ruling out Alzheimer's disease. The, the big question that we ask when patients come into our dementia clinics, will these tests make a difference? You know, will they change our management? And if the answer is yes, then we figure out how to get them. If not, then we generally don't pursue them. What if someone were to measure early, let's say in their 40s? Lots of diseases that we discuss, like cardiovascular disease, even Alzheimer's, they begin much earlier. Let's say these uh, amyloid and tau begin to develop, depending on the individual in their 40s. Would it make sense to measure can we slow disease progression? Can we impact the misfoldings of these proteins from a lifestyle intervention or even early monoclonal antibody use? So uh, great question. And right now, I don't think there'd be too many people across the world that would recommend testing in your 40s unless you're symptomatic. Now, most of Alzheimer's disease is late onset. Less than 1% is related to what we call familial Alzheimer's disease, where you've got an autosomal dominant. That means, you know, you can get the disease if it comes from either parent and you get that specific gene, uh, you can get the disease. In that situation, if you're symptomatic, it may make sense to get these tests. Um, I, most people, if they're asymptomatic, um, the test would likely be negative. Uh, and I think that you probably already know if you have a primary family member with this disease, your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease is about threefold, and you're going to want to do healthy lifestyle behaviors, given how prevalent it is anyway, and also if you have a family history. What about, uh, again, the APO, APOE4? There's a lot of discussion about that. How common is that testing? Should it be done? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so ApoE4, just to back up, there is a cholesterol-carrying protein that comes in sort of three flavors or three different conformations, if you will, a two, a three, or a four. And you get one, we call it an allele, uh, from each parent. So anybody who gets the four allele uh, is at increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And, and we don't think it's a direct effect, but more of sort of a susceptibility gene, if you will. And if you get a 4-4 from each parent, um, then that does put you on a relatively fast track for getting the disease. But the number of people in the population that have a 4-4 is pretty low. Uh, and there's still a lot of people that end up with cancer or heart disease that never develop Alzheimer's disease. So the general consensus is we don't, we don't recommend these tests. We do get asked a lot about them and people can, you know, sign up now and um, get their own APOE genotype and get it tested. Uh, but I, I think um, just because you have a 4-4 doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. And even if you had a 2 or a 2-2 two -two or a 3-2, uh, doesn't mean you won't get it. Your, your risk is low. I still think you're going to want to practice healthy lifestyle behaviors. The one clinical situation that comes up for us now and, and we are checking it, is on whether to prescribe lecanemab or not. So this new monoclonal antibody that was approved by Medicare um, and the FDA in May of this year, uh, it turns out that one of the risks is um, uh, cerebral edema or swelling uh, and or small microbleeds. And so the question is, is how do we know if you're going to take this antibody, who's at great risk to have these side effects or not? If you think about it, if you give a, an antibody to amyloid, it crosses the blood-brain barrier, it's going to take it out of the brain, but it'll take it out wherever it is. And in a certain number of people, you have a fair amount of this protein that's in the small capillaries. So when the, protein, when the antibody takes out the protein, they can leak, cause some swelling or some microbleeds. It turns out if you have an APOE genotype done 
and you are at sort of the four four level, or you have one of the four alleles, um, excuse me, uh, one of the four uh, uh, of the uh, genotype, that you are increased risk for side effects. I had a patient the other day that came in. Uh, they were all on board for uh, having lecanemab. They're interested. We went through the MRI, the exclusions, and all that. And then we got the APOE genotype testing, and he came back a 4-4. And if you look at the data, his risk for having significant side effects from the monoclonal antibody went from 10% to 30%. And for them, that was a bridge too far. They said, you know, now that we have that, we're out. They were in before, but they're out. Now, other people may see that risk and decide to take it, and that's a shared decision-making uh, situation we need to do. And how far from, so lecanemab is now available? Yes. Yeah. It's it been is, out it, since, uh, I think, May. We started, we've probably got about maybe uh, 12 to 14 people that uh, we've started on in, in our uh, infusion center. That's fascinating, but certainly not without risk. What about other medications like Aricept and Namenda? When I was there, uh, one of the other physicians, we'll give uh, Dr. Burge a shout out, was very interested in Axona, some medium train, chain trig triglycerides. Where are we at with Aricept and Namenda and some of these other medications that have been around for quite some time? Yeah, so I think uh, in the general prescribing um, uh, providers in dementia clinics, whether they're geriatricians or um, uh, neurologists, psychiatrists, would still offer that group of drugs, the cholinesterase inhibitors that boost acetylcholine, like denepazil or rivastigmine or galantamine, as first-line treatment for early Alzheimer's disease. Now, uh, we wait, actually, until an individual has a dementia to prescribe the drugs, and it seems a little counterintuitive. Where people are coming in so early now in the mild cognitive impairment phase, and they're like, well, what about denepazil? Well, they've done the studies. If you're at the MCI phase and you follow people over time, being on a cholinesterase inhibitor or not doesn't change your progression rate to go on to get dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And it makes sense. It's not getting at the targeted pathology like the amyloid or the tau. Um, so we actually wait until somebody meets criteria for dementia. And then if we do believe they have Alzheimer's disease, we prescribe the drugs. What can we expect out of them? Some mild, symptomatic, modest cognitive stability. I've seen people go six months, a year, uh, sometimes a couple years, relatively stable. At some point, we know people will progress. The same thing with memantine or namenda. That's a drug we typically reserve for more moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. To give some of your um, listeners an idea, they may be familiar with the mini mental status exam, 30 points, perfect score. People that benefit from memantine or namenda typically score between three and 12 on the mini mental. So it's more for moderate to severe cognitive impairment. Again, the data would suggest some relative modest cognitive stability over time, six months, a year, a couple of years. Eventually, we know individuals will progress. So Axona uh, is still very interesting. I have a lot of patients that do the, you know, uh, coconut oil and consume the medium chain triglycerides. And a very interesting theory because it kind of ties into what we call type three diabetes, if you will. We know that in brain cells, they're relatively starved for glucose. There's a decrease in insulin receptors. And, and so if you can't get blood sugar, which is your primary brain fuel, uh, glucose into the brain, you know, why not get breakdowns, ketones, if you will, from um, fat byproducts. So it's, it's some, it had some interest. I think the problem that Exona had is sort of a, a marketed pharmaceutical uh, nutritional uh, drug, if you will, is that they did the smaller study in the hundreds that showed some similar efficacy to uh, some of the prescription drugs. But in phase three trials, we usually are up in the thousands, right? So 1,500, maybe 2,000 uh, individuals to be studied. And to my knowledge, they never went on and did that. So it, it, I've still had some patients, families go after it online. I think there's still a website you can go, um, but it still hasn't, I think, been proven uh, as a solid treatment, if you will. I think it's fair to say uh, that a lot of people are prescribing. 
And, you know, uh, when I was doing my fellowship, we did talk quite a bit about type 3 diabetes of the brain or, um, you know, this kind of idea of Alzheimer's. And we spoke about there was a period of time where people tried intranasal insulin. Is that true? I feel like there is. I think at least for the U.S. trial, the big big problem with intranasal um, insulin was the delivery and figuring out a way to consistently have it absorbed and utilized. And uh, I think that was the SNF trial, the study uh, uh, to fight uh, forgetfulness or something like that. But um, unfortunately, um, I'm not sure they were able able to pull it off. And to my knowledge, uh, even the small studies uh, weren't able to, you know, confirm uh, efficacy or benefit. But it's still an interesting um, sort of uh, theory and, and, you know, there is data to suggest that if um, even in late life or, or middle life, if you control blood pressure and diabetes long term, that you may decrease your uh, decline in cognition. Again, what's hard about clinical trials is what you get six months, you get a year, maybe a year and a half. And you and I both know when you're in it for the long haul to preserve your brain, you may have to be looking at five or 10 years. And that's a long time for investigators to stick with uh, participants. And, you know, you've got dropout and people move. And so th- these studies are inherently very difficult uh, to, to pull off, if, especially if the effect is modest from a year-to-year basis. Yeah, a- absolutely. In regard to body composition, where are we at with actionable items that an individual could do to prevent um, Alzheimer's and all, and on that note, mild cognitive impairment. Is mild cognitive impairment reversible? Or once an individual has it, that remains, obviously it depends on what the cause is, whether it's hypothyroidism, et cetera, maybe a period of lack of sleep. But is there some reversal reversal of mild cognitive impairment or no, because the pathology is the same? Yeah, so let me um, tackle both sort of the body composition, if you will, and whether or not uh, MCI is um, uh, reversible. So um, we we do know in the Lancet article, uh, I would uh, refer many of your listeners to 2020 if they got in and simply looked at, you know, um, Lancet, dementia, prevention. There's a great review and a, a great study that looked at Uh, the different types of risk factors across one's lifespan and their attributable risk for future onset of dementia. And and obesity was part of that, especially in midlife. And and again, all of these things aren't like the answer, but they're part of the answer, right? And so if if you meet criteria for obesity, there does appear to be a um, uh, independent uh, risk factor for future Alzheimer's disease. And what's the mechanism? You know, is it again, this hyperglycemia and insulin resistance? Is it oxidative stress? Is it inflammation? Is it through cardiovascular disease or diabetes? I mean, there could be a variety of different mechanisms, but trying to keep your body habitus, you know, within uh, a normal range could be a benefit. You know, I, I think, um, most of the studies looking at health prevention are just trying to keep things steady and not necessarily improve it so they're not declining. Um, there, there have been, you know, a few small studies that have looked at improving things. Um, now, is MCI reversible? Remember, MCI is a syndrome. So within mild cognitive impairment, uh, presumably 10, 15% of it could be from B12 deficiency, thyroid disease, sedating medicines like alprazolam or Xanax. So, so, so there are a subset of those that would be reversible. I think from a mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease, I, I'm not aware that would necessarily improve things, but you could potentially stabilize uh, the condition. So maybe you stay at MCI and don't progress to Alzheimer's disease per se. Now, there are other comorbid comorbid conditions that can make your recall and cognition worse. So for instance, sleep disorders, 
You know, um, there's probably a hazard ratio of three or four for people with obstructive sleep apnea to go on and develop Alzheimer's disease. And we know some people in sleep apnea can have cognitive impairment, typically executive function, et cetera. So it's tough in my dementia clinic when I see patients, are they symptomatic from their untreated OSA or are they symptomatic from Alzheimer's disease? Well, you don't know until you treat them and get better. Some, you know, maybe a third of my patients will get better. Their attention will be better. Their memory will be better. A third stay about the same. Um, and I can take some uh, comfort in knowing that their trajectory to decline if they have Alzheimer's disease will be slower. If they're, if they're effectively treating a primary sleep disorder, we have some data around that. And, and a third may progress and, and maybe the, the sleep disorder didn't have uh, a, a component that was symptomatic. But I think that's uh, an important thing uh, to look at. Hearing impairment. Oh my gosh. If you look at this Lancet article. Wait, what? I'm just kidding. Hearing, yeah. Um, hearing impairment had the strongest association with prospective Alzheimer's risk than all the other risk factors. So it's, it's fascinating. There's some data suggesting that if you use hearing aids and you need them, you may decrease your risk of Alzheimer's disease, or you may slow your decline if you have it. Now, not proven, but suggested by the data. And there's a lot of theories as to why there may be an association. We haven't quite figured that out, but it is a very compelling association. Why do you think that there is a relationship if you were to pick one thing? Well, you know, I think what many people go to is the socialization. And we know that um, uh, isolation and not getting out and not staying connected is, is a big risk factor for depression and dementia. So it, we do know that people who are hearing impaired, they tend to shy away from uh, interactions and gatherings, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or big groups. So, so that's one. The second is there's a theory that that part of the brain, um, you actually have to get resources from other part of your brain in, in order to interpret things. And that may put additional stress on the brain to cause it to decline. There's some people who believe some of these situations are, it's one in the same disease. It's not really a peripheral hearing impairment, but it's an auditory comprehension problem that your posterior temporal lobe, you know, is having trouble understanding. Uh, and so that could be it. And then there's sort of the overdiagnosis or, or bias that you know, people with hearing impairment are going to be overdiagnosed as having Alzheimer's disease and doing poorly on tests. But to me, I think it's the social interaction that uh, I sort of look at and see. The other things could be occurring, but I, it's very, um, I think, uh, encouraging to know that your quality of life and your mood and potentially your brain could be preserved by uh, being able to hear better. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense. When we talk about sleep, is there a mechanism of action that we know that protects the brain versus that harms the brain? What is some of the, the data out there on sleep? And yeah, so there's, there's a lot of interesting articles online and, and people have looked at. I'm not sure we've necessarily uh, proven all the mechanisms, uh, but one of them that concerns everybody, certainly if it's obstructive sleep apnea that's not being treated, people can get pretty hypoxic at night. It's pretty impressive how low they can. I just had a patient that was getting down in the 60s and 70s at night, very severe sleep apnea. That's not normal. You know, people may do 80s and that sort of thing for their saturation. I'm talking about when your saturation level should be 90 or greater. So, you know, if you go to bed and it's six, seven hours every night, your oxygen level's dropping, that obviously can have a direct effect on the brain. The second part of it is, you know, we cycle through our sleep going to, you know, light sleep, deep sleep, dream sleep, REM, and then we kind of go through that through the night. The deep sleep is a time when we restore the brain, replenish that amyloid, we're tr that toxic amyloid we're trying to process. That's been shown in some very elegant studies that that seems to be a time when we're getting rid of some of the proteins that are causing problems. So every night, day in, day out, if you go through and impair um, that deep sleep, you're robbing your brain an opportunity to sort of restore and get rid of some of the toxins. So I think, you know, that can be another source 
there's other things that you know people have looked at and, and tied in, uh, but I think those are probably the two major uh, concerns. And sleep apnea is associated with high blood pressure, and high blood pressure is associated with Alzheimer's disease. So th- there may be several ways to tie it in. Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. As with any aging episode, there are a handful of supplements that are really important, and omega-3 fish oil is one of them. First Form makes a great supplement, and it is called Full Mega. Two soft gels contain 900 milligrams of EPA and 600 milligrams of DHA. Both are fats that are important to brain function, to heart health, and so much more. They are found in cold water, wild-caught Icelandic mackerel, herring and anchovies, and sardines, most of which many of us will not be eating. Full Mega is a great product. You can head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion and read one of their 1,700 five-star reviews. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. When you spend $75 or more, you will get free shipping. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. As always, blood work is a critical factor in understanding where you are in terms of your health and wellness journey. It's not just about how you feel. How you feel is not always how you are. Looking on the inside, which is exactly why it's called Inside Tracker, is a company and a way of doing it that I absolutely believe in. You can look at biomarkers related to insulin sensitivity, to cardiovascular function, to overall iron status, things that are really important to how you age. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. And you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Again, how you feel is not how you are, but truly understanding what is happening within your body allows you to make good critical decisions. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, number one, all the parents are thinking about how their children or grandchildren should not be sleeping in their room right about now. I know that I certainly am. (laughs) Alcohol consumption, that's a big question that people have. It's a big question that people have with um, individuals that are aging. What is some of the information regarding alcohol consumption and dementia, dementia risk? Yeah. So you, you have to be a little cautious um, in interpreting the data on alcohol and brain health for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we're not, we'll never have a randomized trial of alcohol consumption in brain, right? It's just not going to happen. Right. So you have to use these case control studies, follow people over time. And there's a lot of confounding factors that you have to look at. People who drink more, maybe smokers, they may not exercise. So there's a lot of things to tease out when you look at the alcohol and brain health literature. The second thing is, is we don't define our units the same. If you look at that Lancet article, uh, a unit of uh, alcohol is basically eight grams, which is very smaller. You know, in in the United States, it's like 12 to 14 grams of alcohol uh, is a unit. And and to find a unit, that would be about one to two ounces of spirits, um, about three or four ounces of wine, uh, and about 12 ounces of beer, And that's a normal beer with normal alcohol. That's not like a Belgian double or triple because some of the beers can be pretty, pretty alcohol laden. So in general, I would say the bulk of the data suggests that one or two drinks a day um, are not harmful. Um, Some people, you can find studies that say they're protective uh, I'm not quite convinced on the protection, but I don't think they're harmful. I think we can say that based on the bulk of the data. But if you have three drinks or more a day, that definitely will increase your risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease and or vascular uh, disease. So I, I'm asked all the time in clinic, you know, where do I stand on alcohol consumption? In general, if I have a patient in front of me that's already got cognitive impairment and I think has Alzheimer's, I try to encourage them not to drink because as we know, age-related changes, a small amounts of alcohol 
skeletal muscle tends to be down um, unless you're uh, hitting the gym and uh, pumping iron. And so small amounts of alcohol can go a long way. And when I ask questions to my family, I say, well, so if they drink, if they have one drink, do they get confused? Are they their gait and balance? Are they falling? No. But if you keep probing, you find out at, at a pretty small amount, two or three drinks, they notice changes in their cognition or gait imbalance. So I, I think there's risks. And some of these folks are still driving, for God's sake. And you're like, whoa, time out. You've got memory problems and you're drinking alcohol. Hello. Then so you got to kind of pull it in. But from a, a prevention standpoint, you're in midlife or maybe your early 60s and you're saying, how much do I drink? I would hold it to one or two a day uh, and not to, uh, you know, three a day or 21 or more a week. At that point, I think you're asking for trouble. And I, I would say that that's very generous. That's a, a very generous amount of alcohol for, yeah. for people. And this moves nicely to this concept of cognitive reserve. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this concept of cognitive reserve. How does this play into the idea that uh, cognitive decline is somewhat modifiable? Yeah, so that that sort of ties into this issue of uh, education. And, um, you know, education similar to uh, hearing impairment is right up there in preventing Alzheimer's disease, at least in some of the studies where they've looked at people longitudinally. And, and that education is typically looked at in less than uh, sort of 45 years of age. And there's been some pretty large studies that have shown that uh, more years of education are associated with a decreased risk of future Alzheimer's, um, even when they adjust for high blood pressure and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So what's going on? What are we what are we doing uh, to the brain, if anything? So um, some people have said that you're um, building up some cognitive reserve. Uh, and, you know, we can define that as sort of a difference between an individual's clinical picture and their neuropathology. Um, it's sort of this, um, it, it's the ability to have the mental flexibility and adaptability that enables preservation of activities of daily living, your synapses, your brain things may be stronger, um, and uh, you may be more resilient uh, to the changes that can occur when the plaques entangles or whatever type of abnormal protein is coming along. So, um, you know, whether the education, it could also be a proxy for late life learning. You know, people who go and, um, you know, study longer in school, go to college, you know, they may also be doing activities in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that are much more, you know, brain friendly from that standpoint. Hmm. And so I do think, you know, it's hard to know from the standpoint of um, what's actually uh, going on, but it appears to be a robust finding. Um, and um, I think it, it uh, um, possibly could be related to the strength of the connections that occur and how they may maintain over the lifespan um, once you've started off and done that. Now, it doesn't mean you should not be active in late life, but a good part of the prevention occurs before age 45 years. So really reading and learning and trying to educate oneself as much as possible. Yeah. Some people, uh, in addition to educational, some people have looked at um, the occupational complexity. So we know that if you do take a job where you're being much more stressed, that may be stressed, but you're using your brain versus, you know, something that's very rote and, and doesn't require a lot of thought. Um, that may be another example of uh, something that can help build up some cognitive reserve. Leisure activities. You know, I've always said, I, I can't tell you how many people I've seen that are square dancers or ballroom dancers in their 90s. They're fit as a fiddle. Their gait and balance is great. They're running circles around all of us. And they've given their life to these, you know, and you think about it, you've got both physical activity and, and all this brain function uh, that you're having to do to pull off uh, a lot of these activities. So I think picking your leisure activities, I mean, you do things that are fun, but some of them, especially that combine physical activity and a lot of brain thought, could be winners for uh, longevity. Now, mm -hmm. I'm a tennis player, and, and we like to show as we get older, 
we sent around more and more articles that says the average life expense gained by playing tennis is 10 years. And it's very interesting if you look at, there's been a lot of studies that have looked at the effect of sports and their longevity. And so, you know, you, I, you pick sports and you gravitate to ones you like. But if you're trying to prolong your life, uh, you can you can actually look at those studies and pull them off. They're quite interesting. Swimming's another one that yeah, you can imagine that uh, uh, seems to uh, be associated with uh, longevity. You know, I know some of your uh, colleagues are going are looking at hormone replacement or at least testosterone replacement. Have you seen any of um, those kinds of interventions, whether it's hormone replacement on um, improvement in or maintenance or stability of brain function? Yeah, you know, um, I have to say it seems like the field for Alzheimer's disease has sort of, you know, swung away and a lot of people are looking at sort of ex- antioxidants and the uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies and, and things along those lines. Um, you know, the, the data has been mixed on hormone replacement. I think most people have inclu- concluded so far that, you know, testosterone replacement and estrogen replacement, again, a lot of this depends on when it's happening and over what period of time, uh, hasn't been shown uh, to be effective. But, you know, not everybody still feels that way. Uh, So I do think there's still more to be learned about physiologic replacements that, you know, don't necessarily will cause thrombosis or cancer or things along those lines. Um, and, and I think there's also, and I'm not a, a nutritionist or food expert, but a lot of people are looking at foods as a way to, you know, boost, you know, certain hormones and uh, help with, um, you know, the nutrients and antioxidants and, and focus in Mediterranean diet and things along those lines. So um, soy proteins and, and things from that standpoint. So um, I think there's still more to be seen on that area. Yeah, I, I do believe that um, midlife body composition is going to be critical. And then, of course, maintaining skeletal muscle mass is important, not just in Alzheimer's, but aging in general, sarcopenia, you know, for the patients that we would see in the clinic, I think is just, um, I think we're going to move in a direction where we're going to be able to protect people earlier from a skeletal muscle standpoint, which would be oh, incredible. It, it would just point. be in- incredible. What about this idea of um, infection or air pollution, some of the things that maybe are environmental? Yeah, I I think we've missed the boat on a lot of these things. Again, going back to the Lancet article, only about 40% of the attributable risk we've been able to identify so far. And you think about it, that's almost more than half. We still don't know what is contributing to the risk. And I think part of this is we haven't looked at some of our lifelong factors or things that potentially uh, expose us. And uh, pollution is one of those areas. I I remember um, this is going back almost 25 years, an Alzheimer's conference that was hosted at WashU. And we had a speaker who came in. He said the leading two causes of death in Shanghai, China, were COPD and Alzheimer's disease. And they had huge problems with pollution. They may still, I don't know. Um, But the point was that you you can have an environment uh, where you live. And some studies have shown if you live close to some factories and things like that, you may be at risk for like some Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease, et cetera. So there is uh, uh, an issue there. And I think there's uh, magnetite is a specific, one of the compounds that's in the air, particulate matter that we can breathe in, uh, nitrous oxide, particulate matter. A lot of different things can come into our body. You wonder about water too and the different things, you know, we allow so much uh, uh, number of pesticides and, you know, insecticides and things like that, that, are um, uh, in very low uh, amounts. And you say, well, they're low amounts, they should be safe. But do we really know if you've ingested something for 30, 40 years? I mean, these are hard studies to look at. And I do think more people uh, will try uh, to take a look at it and see. You know, we used to think smoking uh, wasn't a factor uh, because um, 
you know, uh, it was protective for Alzheimer's disease. And the original studies suggested that is because people died from cancer before they had a chance to get their Alzheimer's <laughs> disease. But smoking definitely over age 65 years uh, is uh, in a lot of studies now have shown, you know, there's inflammation and toxins, probably oxidative stress, things along those lines. So it's not surprising that, you know, uh, pollution uh, can be uh, an issue. And, and I think that, uh we just have to be uh, continuing to be cognizant of, you know, where we live, what we live. I mean, there are some times we've had these fires that have come down and people actually wearing masks. And uh, so we have to be careful what we breathe. That certainly can be uh, a part of the uh, equation. What about neuroprotective compounds like fish oil or caffeine or nicotine or, you know, you name it. There's lots of nootropic type substances out there. Yeah, you know, um, I think they all have some uh, interest from a study uh, standpoint. The, the tough part, like I said, is to really show efficacy. You're going to have to follow these compounds over time. And so there's always somebody who can get a little study, basic science, some case control things uh, that will tout a certain amount. So I, my general rule of thumb is, you know, I, I don't, a lot of these I can't recommend just from an evidence-based standpoint. Uh, they may be of benefit but they just haven't been shown in, in large trials uh, to be uh, effective. They certainly have some theoretical reasons and some scientific reasons uh, to be helpful. Uh, but we also have to be cautious in the supplement industry. We've seen that when we've tried to do high doses of vitamin A and have problems with either liver disease or cancer. Uh, too much of anything can be bad. And I think you know, when, when you look at the blue zones across the world and people live in their 90s and uh, hundreds, you know, certainly some of that's genetics. There's no doubt. But they didn't get that way taking, you know, this supplement or that supplement. You know, typically they're active, physical activity, they're social, they're connected with their environment, they're eating healthy, they're sleeping well. So, so there are certain environmental things that are probably going to be much help more helpful in the long run to protect your brain than, than picking out, you know, one specific uh, supplement or, or things on those lines. That's why I think food and broad-based food diets, you, you can hit so many different antioxidants and uh, different areas that can be a benefit. It's hard to just replace that with just one or two supplements. But the supplement industry is huge. I bet you 10% of my patients come in taking, you know, five, six, seven, eight different supplements in, in the hopes that would be helpful. Uh, as I tell them, uh, you know, I can't do a recommendation for and against, uh, except for B12 deficiency, we know has strong neurologic uh, um, correlates, and that can be done by a blood test. Uh, but be sure you've talked with your um, pharmacist or your physician about any drug nutrient interactions, because those can happen too. Hmm. What would your top three, if you were to have to rank things from a protective aspect, would you say sleep is number one, exercise. How would you personally rank them? Because I will tell you at Wash U, uh, it's, uh, I would say a lot of people are working a lot of hours and may not get a ton of sleep. Right, right. So um, I, I would certainly put physical activity up there. And um, we, we don't know the exact dose effect, but it's probably 150 minutes or more a week. And it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, that vigorous uh, walking um, and, and getting that amount of regular physical activity, I think, is a, is a great strategy. And what's nice about that one, not only could it potentially help delay the onset of Alzheimer's or MCI, uh, think about the benefits it has for the cardiovascular system, the musculoskeletal system. I, I think there's some great reasons why to adopt exercise. And you know, there's studies on gardening. Um, almost any sport uh, that just show that being outside and doing some of these natural things we've done for years uh, is a huge benefit. My mom, who's 90 now, she never worked out a day in her life, but you know what? She was a gardener round the clock, inside and outside, and she never stopped that sort of activity and, and things on those lines. She had some great genetics, but I do think Part of this has to do with, again, what, what's your leisure activity and, and how does that stimulate your brain, uh, things along those lines. Um, you know, another one we haven't talked on is stress and depression. And there's times where we can't 
help ourselves and you know we get dealt things either uh, professionally, personally, uh, socially, where we're going to be down. But I think there's one thing to be said for a bump in the road and another thing to be said if you're constantly down and, and being under constant anxiety or depression can really raise your cortisol levels, stress levels. And we know over time that can be a negative impact on brain and brain health. So for those people, again, the healthy lifestyle behaviors, the socialization and the exercise are some of the best ways to modify that. But getting professional help, whether it's counseling and or medicines to help cope with some of your stress can be helpful. Now, I don't have data that show that the intervention are necessarily going to be helpful, but we know the association with depression on uh, future brain health uh, is uh, uh, can be a negative one. So treating that and addressing it, I think, are important. We already talked a little bit, you know, about the hearing. Uh, I think it's important. Social isolation is the other thing. Is is being part of your community, having that engagement, whether it's volunteer work. Um, you know, uh, being involved in, in programs and uh, having those interactions, I think, are huge. And uh, they help maintain our social connectedness, but uh, they have positive impacts on cognition, motor skills. Um, I think those are all things that uh, we can look at. Uh, in addition, I sort of have the top 10 uh, list and, and, uh, those I would, I, I have your 10 list. I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a All lot right. of these questions I'm asking, but I, I do know the answer, uh, cause right. I have heard them. Right. What about medications that could potentially, um, perpetuate or speed up the process of Alzheimer's? And are we talking about the same pathology of the misfoldings of these proteins? Is it both the amyloid and tau? Uh, again, we're talking about a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, is it, the influence of these misfolding proteins from the lack of sleep, from medication, et cetera? Yeah. So um, you raise a good question that I don't think has been well studied. And that is, is there a medication we're taking that could be help or hurtful long-term for cognitive health? One group of medicines that's kind of come up in the last decade have been those that have anticholinergic side effects. And so those could be the overactive bladder agents. Now, not all overactive bladder agents are created equal. Don't go out and stop that. Talk with your doctor or pharmacist. But some of them can cause sedation, confusion, memory problems. Uh, There can be gastrointestinal or GI drugs that slow down gut activity that can have that. There are certain nausea medicines, antihistamines. So that class of drug has been associated with some cognitive impairment. Now, we don't know, is the cognitive impairment due to the drug and it's reversible? Uh, Is it people already had Alzheimer's disease, but they became more symptomatic and the drugs brought it out? Or, or are they actually harming the brain cells and bringing on an Alzheimer's disease? We don't know. But that class of drug, along with the benzos, the alprazolams, the ativans, I think we have to be very cautious on in um, uh, prescribing and monitoring. I suspect there are other drugs out there we're going to find out down the road. Some clever investigator is going to look at you know, a specific drug that's very common uh, that may be a problem. And, um, and we call that post-marketing surveillance. And somebody's just got to go and look at some of these drugs that have been out for a long time and see if there's any associations. But those are two classes that we see. Uh, one class of drug that may actually reduce the risk of dementia is uh, warfarin or Coumadin and or um, the DOAX, the new novel agents that uh, can ca- uh, contribute to anticoagulation. And, and so we know atrial fibrillation, which is um, an irregular, irregular heart rate, some of your li- uh, heart rate, some of your listeners may be uh, aware of, is pretty common in uh, older adults. You get over age 80, 90. It's not ubiquitous, but it's, it's common. Uh, we do know that atrial fibrillation independently puts you at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. And there's been actually some data that suggested if you treat that, which is, you know, evidence-based and appropriate treatment with a blood thinner, you may reduce your risk 
of Alzheimer's disease, which raises the question, if treatment uh, or, um, well, how does atrial fibrillation impact the brain to bring on a dementia? And, and although we don't know, there, there are two common theories. One is we know atrial fibrillation can cause clots in the heart, and those clots can break off. Sometimes it can be a major stroke, but sometimes they just may be small little microemboli, teeny tiny strokes, if you will. So one mechanism could be that um, we're, we're um, having microemboli that are causing problems. But the other is, if you think about it, you know, you've got these four chambers working in, uh, you know, they're very synchronous fashion and, and pumping your blood and getting things going. But in atrial fibrillation, you kind of lose, uh, you know, a couple of the chambers um, pumps, if you will. Uh, and, and so your cardiac output is lower. And so you may be hypoperfusing, decreasing the blood supply to the brain. And maybe over time, that that is an issue. So um, I, we don't quite know what the impact is, but we don't know treating it, making sure your heart rhythm is under control are, are important parts. Uh, and I do think we're going to see more about this uh, atrial fibrillation being a risk factor for brain disease and um, prevention by treating it uh, as time goes on. Hmm. Uh, now, infections, you asked a question about infections. Yeah. You know, Tell me. For, for years, nobody would have thought that peptic ulcer disease would have been, uh, at least in part, brought on by, um, you know, a bacteria. Now we know H. pylori, and, you know, there can be a bacteria that can hang up and cause inflammation. There is still a, a number of investigators, I'll bet a uh, small percentage, that are still studying the hypothesis that chronic inflammation from infections that continue to sort of harbor inside us, whether it's a herpes virus or other viruses that harbor down, some people think the amyloid plaque is in response to previous infections and that it, it came about to encase it and to, you know, to cover it, if you will. And, and there are some trials looking at antiviral agents in sort of phase one, phase two that people are looking at. So I don't think we've, you know, ruled out. Um, I, I think, you know, probably the majority of, of experts in the field will say, ah, you know, I don't, we don't think this is infectious. But we said that about peptic ulcer disease. So I think, you know, some of the biggest breakthroughs are by researchers who look at novel and unique ways to tackle uh, diseases and, you know, you could argue we haven't done a great job so far of, you know, you know, improving it or stopping it. So um, I think more is to be said on this issue of uh, infections uh, and chronic inflammation. We do believe across the lifespan, you know, can potentially cause problems. We've looked at that with dental disease, periodontal disease, heart disease, that sort of thing. So I think um, it's not, uh, it's within the realm of possibility. The other thing people are looking at is the gut biome. That's a very exciting area. We know a lot of bacteria hang out there. They may get adjusted if you take a lot of antibiotics or for whatever reason, eat different foods. And, and, and some of these bacteria we think may be, you know, positive and helpful. Some of them may be harmful. And, um, you know, how many of uh, those and what type are causing chronic inflammation over time. So that's a, a burgeoning area that uh, people are looking at in its relation to uh, brain disease too. So exciting. A lot of people are looking at different angles. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I love what you said about asking a different type of question. Potentially, there are more novel ideas. And we've been thinking about these diseases in one capacity. And Perhaps yeah, they we, we, we need it. We need it. You know, this disease model of, uh, you know, you treat, it's very expensive once people have symptoms and doing what you're promoting, uh, Dr. Lyon, and, and uh, with, you know, books and programs is can we back this up and prevent the symptoms from coming on? Because really, if you look at the data, once you start having symptomatic memory impairment, from Alzheimer's disease, you already have a lot of amyloid in your brain and trying to take it out. And um, this, I'm not saying it's too late, but trying to take it out and actually make a big impact on the disease. Uh, in a sense, uh, you know, the horse is out of the barn, if you will. And so backing it up before you get symptoms and trying to prevent that symptomatic phase is a laudable goal. And I think more, more to be done on that. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Carr. I don't want to keep you too much because, uh, again, your colleagues might kill me. Um, what Patient, is on <laughs> the patients and families might be after me? So, uh, yeah. um, what is on the horizon for you? What are you working on now? You know, um, it's very interesting. So um, I'm I'm finally trying to bring together the dementia and driving piece and the prevention piece for Alzheimer's. And, and a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Babalal at uh, Washington University, puts a cart ship in a car and we're able to track where people go. And no surprise, in pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, because we follow people longitudinally in the Alzheimer's Research Center, those people who drive less appear to be on the fast track to Alzheimer's disease and, and, you know, they may already be starting to shrink their driving destinations and their social connections. And the question is, can we take a group with preclinical Alzheimer's disease that are already starting to show they're decreasing their life space? And can we do an intervention to keep them active, to keep them out? And will that delay or prevent the onset? of symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. That's kind of where we're heading from a research standpoint. Now it's gonna be uh, a while before we can actually gear up to do um, uh, a uh, intervention, but we'll start off with a small sample and see you know, what does that look like? What can we get people to do? How can we do their social interaction? That sort of thing. So uh, that's kind of the next step. Very, very exciting. Dr. Carr, thank you so much for your time, and I cannot wait to catch up with you later. All right. You're very welcome. Good luck, everybody there, keeping your brain cells in good shape. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.